0: Good morning, beloved. It is time to turn to God's Word, so if you have your Bible, turn with me to Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 3, we'll begin in verse 7. We are continuing our series through Mark's Gospel, which we've called Follow Me, Jesus, in the Gospel of Mark. And what we're trying to do with this Gospel is take a hard look at Jesus, who He is, what He's like, what He has done for us, and what He calls us to be and to do. And so we pray that as we work through Mark's Gospel, we would come to know our Lord even better and to love Him even more. Now when we think about Mark's Gospel, the key question is, what kind of Son of God is Jesus? Mark tells us from chapter 1, verse 1, that that his whole purpose is to introduce us to Jesus, uh, the Christ, the Son of God. But As we've seen, that's a title that's used of different beings throughout the Old Testament in particular, and so that title isn't quite clear to the Jewish people of Jesus' day when he first begins his earthly ministry. But Mark is answering that question for us. In scene after scene, he's teaching us the surprising ways in which Jesus is the Son of God. Just for a review of the first couple of chapters, we can skim this real quickly. We can see that Jesus is the kind of Son of God who pleases the Father so much the Father speaks from heaven at his baptism. Chapter 1, verse 11, it says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the kind of Son of God who successfully defeats all the temptations of Satan. See that in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. He's the kind of son of God who teaches with all authority that that demons have to obey and that stun people when they hear him teaching with authority. Chapter 1, verse 27. He's the kind of son of God who heals heals all diseases. See that in chapter 1, verses 34 and 41. He's the kind of son of God who forgives sins on the earth. You see that in chapter 2, verses 1 and 11, that wonderful sermon Pastor Dennis preached for us. He's the kind of son of God who befriends sinners and eats with them. We consider that in chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. And he's the kind of son of God that you cannot put into the box of ordinary religious understanding. He's the kind of new wine that bursts the old wineskins. The kind of new cloth that um, tears the old garment. He is something entirely new as the son of God. And he's the kind of son of God who rejects legalism because he's actually Lord of the Sabbath. Indeed, he's Lord of all. We saw that last week. Jesus says it of himself in chapter 2, verse 28. So Mark is teaching us what kind of son of God Jesus is, and he is teaching us that he's, Jesus is surprising. He, he defies our expectations. He foils our categories. And for our text this morning, we have the same basic point that is running through Mark's gospel. That Jesus is the Son of God. But in our text now, Mark is going to help us see that not only is that something we need to recognize about Jesus, but his being the Son of God is something that should cause us to search ourselves as to whether or not we are responding to that truth the right way. Because in this text, not everyone believes that. Not everyone knows that. And some who know it uh, don't really worship him. And we're learning in this text that if we get Jesus wrong, then we'll get worship wrong. That the who of worship drives the what of worship. And so if we miss the who, then we won't really worship Jesus as we ought to. So in this text, I want us to see kind of four things, four responses we actually want to avoid. Four responses we want to avoid when it comes to this truth that Jesus is the Son of God. And here it is. Number one, Jesus can be acknowledged yet not worshipped. Acknowledged yet not worshipped. We see that in verses 7 to 12. We want to avoid that. Number two, Jesus can be followed yet not known. Followed yet not known. We see that in verses 13 to 19. Number three, Jesus can be awaited, yet not received. We can wait for Jesus, but still not receive Him when He comes. Verses twenty-two to thirty, and Jesus can even be family, and yet not believed. He can be family, and yet not believing. That's what we'll see in verses twenty and twenty-one, and then also in verses thirty-one to thirty-five. And I pray the Lord would give us grace to understand and experience what it means. Uh, to know and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Look with me in Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The Lord blessed the reading of His word. Four ways we do not wish to respond to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. Number one. We don't want to respond by acknowledging Him yet not worshiping Him. Our section, our, our text this morning, really sort of flows through three scenes. You see there in verse 7, we start out by the sea. Then in verse 13, we're on the mountainside with the disciples. Then in verse 20, we're at Jesus' home, which is probably Peter's home in Capernaum. Our first point, Jesus can be acknowledging, not worship, is in that first paragraph, it comes from the scene by the sea that begins in verse 7 Jesus has tried once again to get away from the crowds you remember he's he's crowd shy he doesn't he doesn't get any kicks out of the sort of worldly popularity that's rising up around him he'd rather be out in desolate places with his father and so he's trying to escape the crowds but the crowds find him anyway they throng to him a great crowd the text says followed him and from this we get again the sense of Jesus's rising popularity people come to him from all over notice how mark specifies the places he's some some places are from close by galilee and judea some come from the big city from jerusalem the religious capital of israel some others come from far-off regions like Idumea and uh, places like beyond the Jordan and Tyre and Sidon. And those places are really a, a commercial for the fact that Jesus is beginning to attract people from all the nations. Idumea is almost like Samaria. It's a place that's filled with people who were sort of regarded as half-Jewish. Uh, Beyond the Jordan and places like Tyre and Sidon are often associated with God's judgment in the Bible. And so these are people who are seen as far off from God. But, but Jesus is beginning to draw all kinds of people to himself. They come in such great numbers. In verse 9, the Lord tells his disciples to, to get a boat for him so he could push off from the shore and teach from the boat. Because the, the crowd is threatening to crush him. We see scenes like this, I imagine, if you can remember some rock star or pop star, somebody like Michael Jackson comes out from the concert, the fans see him, they all go crazy, and they're all trying to do what? They're trying to reach him and and touch him. And that's what it was for Jesus. People trying to get to him, to touch him. But now the crowd here is acknowledging Jesus. But it's the acknowledgement of popularity and need. This is not yet the acknowledgement of saving faith and worship. We know this because of verse 10. Verse 10 tells us what their motives were. They wanted to be healed. These were people who were sick in body. These were people who had physical need. And they were coming to Jesus to have that need met. But they were not yet worshiping Jesus. Some of these diseases were apparently the result of demonic activity. We see that in verse 11, the reference to the unclean spirits there. But notice the importance of the unclean spirits in this verse. They are the ones who, first of all, see Jesus. They fall down before Jesus. And then they are the ones who cry out, You are the Son of God. This is remarkable because up to this point in Mark's Gospel, the only other person who has acknowledged Jesus' Sonship was God the Father at his baptism. But the demons, are the unclean spirits are the ones who have regularly been the announcers of the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. We see that in chapter 1 verses 23 to 26 for the first time. Jesus is in the synagogue. A man comes to him needing to be healed. I uh, have a demon cast out, and Jesus, teaching with all authority, casts out this demon. And this demon says, we know who you are. You're the son of the Most High. Or again, for the second time in Mark chapter 1, verse 34, again, Jesus is out healing people, and these demons who are being cast out, they acknowledge that he is the Son of God, and Jesus commands them, do not tell them who I am. Because that that knowledge would prevent him from being able to travel and preach uh, as he was as he was called to do. So no one has really understood yet who Jesus is, except the demons who know him from before, and they are crying out. Now why are the demons shouting this? Well. It's because, again, Jesus is casting out demons. And, and what significance is that? That's not, that's not about some movie like The Exorcist and things that we put on Hollywood films. This is the evidence. This is almost the key evidence that, that the kingdom of God is breaking into the world. Because the, the the sort of casting out and the driving away of the unclean spirits signify that, that the king of the kingdom, Jesus, and the reign of God have actually entered into territories that were once dominated by darkness. The unclean spirits know who Jesus is. There's no question about it. They acknowledge it publicly. And they would continue screaming, You are the Son of God. If Jesus did not command them to be silent. But I want you to notice they do not worship Jesus. The crowds acknowledge Jesus in a general way. The demons acknowledge him specifically as the Son of God. Yet neither of them are bowing the knees in giving him adoration that he deserves as God. And so the question becomes what good is it is to acknowledge, is it to acknowledge? that Jesus is the Son of God, yet not worship Him. What profit is there in that? That kind of acknowledgement can't save anyone from their sins, from the judgment of God against sin. That kind of acknowledgement doesn't impress or please God. A A head knowledge that does not worship is really no better than outright unbelief. Real saving faith is not a simple intellectual admission, a kind of fact that we nod at, give a hat tip to, but but don't really sort of lay any claim to. Real saving faith must also be a heartfelt love for Jesus. It must be a glad acceptance of this truth that Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior. And we must go on to build our lives on that truth. So the first mistake we don't want to make, we don't want to make the mistake of acknowledging Jesus without worshiping him. That is not saving faith, beloved. Which brings us to a second mistake we want to avoid. Jesus can be followed yet not known. He can be followed yet not known. That's what we see in verses 13 and 19. That's the second scene in our text. The action moves from the seaside over to a mountainside. And this time Jesus does get away from the crowds, but he calls to himself his disciples, and his disciples come to him uh, as, as call. Now apparently there were more than 12 disciples at this point, uh, because verse 14 tells us that he appointed 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. So the Lord begins to create leaders among his followers. There are a couple of terms there that we should be clear on. One is just that term disciple. A disciple is a, is a student follower. A disciple learns how to live based on the teachings of his rabbi or his master. And they would literally follow them, listening to them, learning from them, and, and putting into practice their teaching. So all the people who are with Jesus on the mountainside are disciples. But now Jesus specifies 12 disciples to also be apostles. Apostles were unique leaders in the Christian movement. According to verse 14, Jesus gave the apostles three basic duties at this point. Number one, they were to be with him. That is, they were to be close to him, and they were to observe him, and they were to learn from him um, what what he had to teach in order to sort of form the movement. So to be with him as students. Number two, they, they were to be sent. He would send them, and this sending really is close to the root word of apostles, sent once, but this sending was to, so that they could preach the message of the kingdom, and so that they could represent the king, namely Jesus. So the apostles had this job of traveling, preaching, planting churches, spreading the Christian movement in obedience to Jesus. And then number three, they would have authority to cast out demons have authority to cast out demons. In other words, this key sign of the breaking in of the kingdom and the arrival of the king, that sign was to, to continue to be shown even in the ministry of the apostles as they cast out demons to show that the kingdom of God had come. This is Jesus' crew. These are the 12 people that he entrusted the entire movement to. In that sense, the apostles were unique. With the exception of the Apostle Paul, no one else after the lifetime of these apostles, uh, these 12, could meet the qualifications for this unique office. But consider these 12 men, what they were like. The first three were Jesus' inner inner circle. You got Peter, whom Jesus gave the nickname, uh, or you got Simon, whom Jesus gave the nickname Peter. A nickname means rock. And then you got two brothers here, James and John. They were uh, fishermen. They are sons of Zebedee. Uh, and apparently, they, James and John are rotted and die too, right? We often think of Peter as being quick with the blade. Remember, he cut off the man's ear in the Garden of Gethsemane. We think of Peter as being rowdy and loud. But apparently, James and John had some of that in them too because Jesus gives them a nickname. Uh, Bornerges, the sons of thunder. Uh, there's a scene in the Gospels where James and John asked, asked Jesus um, when some people rejected him, do you want us to call down thunder and lightning and strike these people? So they, they're a rally bunch who are at the head of Jesus' apostles. Then we have some of the twelve that we don't know a great deal about. We know very little about. We have folks like Andrew and Philip uh, and Bartholomew. And these were ordinary men, all twelve, but, but even those, especially those who um, we, we don't know much about. Some of the twelve struggled spiritually. Peter would deny the Lord three times. John, when the Lord was being taken to the high priest's house for trial, John would follow from a distance and pretend not to be one of the apostles. Thomas is famously known, and maybe unfairly known, as, as Doubting Thomas, because he didn't initially believe that Jesus was risen from the grave. And of course, Judas, as the text says, betrayed the Lord. so these are not spiritual superheroes these are these are men with clay feet these are these are men like you and i these are These are people who have spiritual challenges and ways in which they need to to grow spiritually and some of the apostles had great disagreements between themselves, especially about social or political matters. Matthew as you recall, was a tax collector. the tax collectors were hated. Uh, by Jews, because they were seen as sellouts to Rome, who had conquered um, Israel, had conquered Jerusalem, uh, and and were basically oppressing uh, the people of God. Tax collectors worked for Rome, and so they were treated as sellouts. But then there's a second Simon here listed near the end. Notice there, it's called Simon the Zealot. Now, zealots were basically revolutionaries. They wanted to overthrow Rome. So the church... Uh, would be led, get this now, the church would be led by a pro-Rome tax official and an anti-Rome revolutionary. In the same clan, in the same clique, you got tax collectors and zealots. This is a really timely passage for us, for the church uh, in America today. This is right on time because we have another election coming up that threatens to divide not just the country but to divide the church. Christians are breaking fellowship over their political ideas and their voting behavior. That should not be the case, beloved. There's no biblical grounds for that. No one should be leaving a church simply over differing political ideas. Not if Jesus chose disciples and apostles as, particular, as, as politically different as tax collectors and zealots. Now, I know that if there are leaders who are doing inappropriate things like trying to bind the conscience of people uh, with something other than the word of God, well, you may need to leave a church like that. But just the fact that you and I may differ politically, I mean, have opposing views politically, is, is no sufficient reason for us to break fellowship if we are one in Christ. Because that's what these apostles have in common. Jesus. They all follow Jesus. Jesus is the glue for holding together that kind of diversity. They, that, that diversity and those differences, they don't vanish because they follow Jesus. But Jesus is so much more than those differences. He swallows them up in himself. And really, the, the test that every church will face this election or face the next time there's some kind of racial upheaval or racial crisis, here's a test for the church. Is Jesus enough glue to keep us together despite our differences? That's what each of us have to ask ourselves personally. As we think about our part in our local fellowships. Is Jesus enough to keep us together? We, we need to pray in these coming weeks that, he, that, that we would find him sufficient. And if we don't find him sufficient, we need to know the problem's not in Jesus. The problem is in us. For right here at the foundation of the church, among the 12 leaders of the church, Jesus includes a remarkable diversity. Remarkable differences. And he leads these men to be the leaders of the whole church. There's one more thing we should say about these disciples though. They are following Jesus, yes, but they don't really know Jesus yet. As I said, it's the demons who confess that Jesus is the Son of God. The, the depth of that statement, the knowledge of that statement, really isn't open to the disciples at this point in their journey. They don't know that Jesus is the Son of God. Not deeply. They don't know that Jesus is God the Son. They, they don't know that Jesus is to be crucified as an offering for their sins. They don't know that he's to be raised three days later, demonstrating God's acceptance of his sacrifice. They don't know that Jesus is going to be the eternal ruling king who who, who governs God's kingdom and governs all nations. That's vague, misty knowledge at best for them. So, this scene is a scene that teaches us that it's possible to follow Jesus with incomplete, imperfect understanding. And it's possible to have some knowledge of Jesus, and yet not have a, a personal experiential knowledge, saving knowledge, of who he really is. The term we use for that is nominal Christians. N-O-M-I-N-A-L means in name only. Nominal Christians, or even false converts. There are people who consider themselves to be followers of Jesus who don't really know him. They have not been born again. They have not really come to understand uh, who he is in his person and what that means for how they relate to him. So let me ask you a question this morning. Do you truly know Jesus? Does my asking you that question offend you? If it offends you, It's probably an indication that your knowledge of Jesus is weak. For nobody who knows Jesus gets offended to be asked if they know him. Uh, Because we're happy to tell you about him. We're happy to tell you what we know about him. But those who are shaky in their knowledge of God, when they're asked that question, oftentimes are offended or they pull away. Is that you this morning? Do you know who who Jesus truly is? That he is the son of God in the flesh. That Jesus died for our sins. He's being punished because of your and my disobedience. That he really did rise from the grave and his resurrection really is a a proof of God's satisfaction with his sacrifice. Do you know that he ascended to heaven and right now, even right now, he sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for his people, praying for his people, stepping in to protect and guide and provide for his people. Do you know him as a provider? How well do you know Jesus? The better you know him, the better able you'll be to follow him but merely following him in some nominal sense, that's not the same thing as saving knowledge. For there are many people who have sat on church pews for years and give no evidence of genuine faith in the Son of God. How well do you know Jesus? Do you know him well enough to be sure that you are saved from God's wrath against sin? In the judgment to come. That's how well you need to know it. Which brings us to a third thing. A third mistake we want to avoid. And that's this fact. That that Jesus can be awaited. Can be waited for. Yet not be received. Yet not be received. See there in verse 20. The scene changes again. Jesus returns home. As I said that's actually likely to be. Peter's home in Capernaum. And while at home, three groups of people visit him. Verse 20, the crowds show up again. They so thick that the disciples and Jesus can't even eat. Verse 21, his family comes looking for him. We'll return to that in a moment. And in verse 22, it says the scribes come down from Jerusalem. So they've come from the religious capital. They've joined the crowd. Uh, They've come into Jesus' presence again. We've seen the scribes a number of times already uh, in the gospel. Uh, They've been getting more and more confrontational with Jesus. They've been getting more and more kind of in Jesus' face about the law and about uh, Jesus' teaching. It's it's gotten really bad. See, back in verse 6, they are plotting to destroy Jesus. So These are the original New Testament haters. And they show up to accuse Jesus. Verse 22 says, They were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. In other words, these so-called religious people were accusing the Lord of being filled and controlled by Satan, by Beelzebub. And they were accusing him of doing his miracles and casting out demons, not in the power of God, but in the power of Satan himself. So as as I said a moment ago, the casting out demons was one of the sort of major indications that the kingdom of God was breaking into the world. So so what these scribes were in effect doing was they were taking the key sign of God's work and God's kingdom and they were assigning it, they were giving credit for that to God's greatest enemy, to Satan. They were accusing Jesus of being controlled by the devil. And some religious people can be the nastiest people you ever meet. That was true of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, here's the thing. As religious leaders, they were supposed to be the ones waiting for the Messiah, looking for his coming, looking for his kingdom. They should have been looking for his appearance. He, 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 but, but when he came, they didn't even recognize him, much less receive him. They don't even have the spiritual awareness of Demons. It's a bad day, beloved, when demons have better theology than your religious leaders. And the Lord replies to the scribes in verses 23 to 30 with with two parables and a theology lesson. The first parable is in verses 23 to 26. Now, a parable is a short story that's meant to teach like one major point. And that first parable in 23 to 26, the main point is that a house divided against itself can't stand. They've accused him of being controlled by Satan and and casting out demons by Satan. Well, well, demons are on Satan's side. And Jesus said, what sense does that make? that, That Satan would cast out Satan. If he did that, he'd be destroying his own work. He'd be destroying his own rule. That's the point of the first parable. The second parable is in verse 27. And the main point of this story is that Jesus is the one who is robbing the strong man's house. The strong man is Satan. Jesus says, now, uh, unless Satan is bound, uh, how can his house be robbed? He's saying, what I'm doing in casting out demons, effectively, is binding Satan. And what I'm going to do after that is reclaim everything that belongs to God. I'm going to plunder his house. And I'm going to reclaim the people he's afflicted. That's what's happening when he casts out demons and and heals people who have been demon-oppressed. He is freeing them and, and calling them into the kingdom of God. And so he's the one who binds the strong man. He's the one who, by the power of God, is plundering, is robbing the house of God's enemy, Satan. Now the third point exposes the serious theological problems of the scribes. Look with me again in verse 28. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter." But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. They were saying, not that Jesus was casting out the unclean spirit, but that he himself had one. The spirit that Jesus has, of course, is God the Holy Spirit who had descended upon Jesus at his baptism, who had uh, led Jesus into the wilderness for his temptation, who was working in and through Jesus uh, in these miraculous signs. The ones who are supposed to know God are actually blaspheming against God. Blaspheme means to, to slander or to insult. It was an insult to God to take the powerful workings of God and to say that that was Satan doing it. It was a slander to the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus says that staggers us is this. Listen, all other sins, even sins and blasphemies against him, against Jesus, those things can be forgiven. But if you slander and insult and blaspheme the Holy Spirit, then you have committed a sin that Jesus says is unforgivable. He, he calls it an eternal sin. And that's what these scribes, these religious leaders, had done Jesus is saying there's no coming back from that all other sins there's a remedy for but if you harden your heart against the Holy Spirit and resist the work of the Holy Spirit you can't be saved from that that's a rejection of God that's an insult of God from which you cannot recover Now, let me make a couple points of application here, because some people wonder whether they have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or not. I agree with a lot of preachers who say, if you're wondering that, that's a pretty good indication that you haven't done that, right? That the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit implies a certain intentional hardness of heart. It's not an accidental thing, right? As it says in verse 30, uh, they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. They were intentionally and deliberately opposing the Son of God and opposing the Spirit of God um, when they came to him that day. That was no accident. And it's that hardness of heart that keeps a person from worrying about whether or not they have sinned in this way. Hard-hearted people don't go around kind of, you know, wringing their hands and and wondering, "Have have I sinned against God this way? No, the, the fact that you may wonder that is actually an indication that you have not likely done that. So but the second thing I want to say is this. Having said that, I do hope that you can see that it's possible to be in the presence of the Lord, like these scribes, and not receive him. It's possible to see the Holy Spirit's work in the lives of people around you. And respond to that work by discounting it, shrugging it off, or being unbelieving. Or, more closer to home, it's possible to, to sense the Holy Spirit beginning to convict you of your own personal sin. And to sense the Holy Spirit making you feel guilty about the wrong that you have done. It's possible to feel the, the motions of the Holy Spirit in that way and yet respond by hardening your heart. Rather than confess your sin to God and acknowledge it, you try to cover it over with some, some lie or some excuse. Rather than uh, confess to a spouse or to your children or to a coworker that you have sinned against them in some way. Uh, instead, you justify it by pointing out some wrong that they have done. It's possible to feel the Holy Spirit calling you to lay down your life and follow Jesus and instead of submitting to the Holy Spirit to to wall yourself off from Him to resist it and to turn again to sin. Well, that's not better than the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That resistance to God ends up in God's judgment too that's not a mistake you want to make. If you say you have been waiting on the Lord, you have been seeking the Lord, you have been looking for the Lord, I wanna let you know that today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your hearts. Today is the day to let let go of everything and to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to receive him as the Son of God, to receive him as the Lord, to receive him as the Savior of the world who gave himself for your sins. This is the day to acknowledge that, in fact, you are a sinner and you deserve God's judgment, but to also acknowledge that God has sent a Savior to rescue you. This is the day the Lord has made for your salvation. If you are listening to this and you have not yet put your faith in Jesus, do it now. It will profit you nothing to say, I was waiting for the Lord. But then you refuse to receive him. You sense the Holy Spirit drawing you to Jesus. You sense the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin. Submit to it. It seems like it's going to hurt. It seems like it's going to cost you. And it will. But it will be worth it. It will be worth it to be forgiven rather than faking your way out of your guilt. It will be worth it to be reconciled to God rather than pretending to be religious. It will be worth it to be born again rather than living dead in sin. It may cost you everything. But it'll be worth it because you will receive Jesus and the very kingdom of God itself. Don't make the mistake of saying you're waiting for Jesus and then refusing to receive him. Which brings us to a fourth and final point. Jesus can even be family and yet not believed. That's what we see in verses 20 and 21. You know, the crowd comes to Jesus' home in verse 20. Then we read this in verse 21. Uh, Jesus' family learns that he's there, uh, and they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. The word seize is a strong word, isn't it? If you seize something, that's an aggressive action. They, they are preparing to snatch his body, to grab him and to control him. They think for his own good. Because they think that he is out of his mind they, they think they need to force him back to reality. Now beloved verse 21 that's a that's a painful sentence to read their family members thinking they have to see someone because they believe that that family member is out of their minds. One of my favorite uncles has dealt with schizophrenia. Um, all of my life, all of my 50 years. Uh, He was a promising young man uh, with a career in computers when computers used to fill a whole big old warehouse long before laptops and desktops. And he had a young woman that he was crazy about that um, he had planned to marry. And on the day of their wedding, she said to him, I'm going to marry your best friend instead. And that broke something deep inside of him. And my grandmother, his mother, uh, scraped together some monies to take a bus from North Carolina to New York to gather her son, bring him home, back to North Carolina. And for most of my life, I have seen him live between episodes. Sometimes being uh, lucid and clear. He's a very gentle, soft-spoken man. And sometimes being out of touch with reality um and and in those times often seem like superhuman strong and and um, often in danger of of harming himself and i've seen a number of times my other uncles um, have to be called to come and to subdue him and to get him to a hospital or get him some other kind of care and those are always terrifying instances those are always um Painful times. Maybe I'm projecting a little bit on this text, but to have to seize a family member because you think they're out of their mind and maybe a harm to themselves and others, that's a painful thing. You know what's more painful? Being wrong about their mental condition. Jesus is not out of his mind. He is doing the Father's will. They just don't believe him. Can you imagine doing the the father's work and having your own family write you off as out of your mind? Some of you don't have to imagine that. It's happened to you. Your family has learned that you are following Jesus, and things you used to do, you have stopped because they were sinful and not pleasing to the Lord. Now you live a, a very different lifestyle, and they have gotten wind of that, and, and they have told you that you are crazy for doing so. It's painful. And, and some of you told your family that you wanted to go into Christian ministry. Not only did you want to follow Jesus as an individual disciple, but you wanted to turn away from your college education, you wanted to turn away from your career field, and and you wanted to do something uh, in the Christian ministry that didn't pay very well and didn't have any prestige in the eyes of the world, And, and your family told you that you were out of your mind for throwing away your career, throwing away your education, throwing away your life. It's painful. All of that pain and misunderstanding is hanging over verse 21. Now, Mark doesn't finish the story right away. He then sort of switches in verse 23 and tells us about the scribes and the interaction with the scribes. And that only that only doubles the tension, that only doubles the 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 conundrum for Jesus because he is facing uh, family members who don't believe in him, thinks he's out of his mind, and he's facing religious people who think he is controlled by Satan. So we come down to verses 31 to 35. Someone tells Jesus that his family is looking for him outside in verse 31. (laughs) Every time I read that, I I, kind of just hear Kids from my childhood, when, when one of the kids would say to somebody, Your mama looking for you. And depending on how they said it, you know, you were in trouble. <laughs> uh, your, your mama looking for you, you're in trouble. Uh, or, or there was at least the potential that you had done something wrong. There's something about your parents looking for you that instantly makes you wonder whether or not you're in trouble or not. But Jesus surprises us with his response. It's not a response that that we would make, right? In fact, if we said something like what Jesus is about to say, we would be out of our minds, right? <laughs> Probably out the house too. The Lord asks, "Who is, who are, my mother and my brother?" I'm sure the room froze and everybody's like, "What?" They they knew that that question was. An explosive one. The room grew still and Jesus looked around the room at the people who were sitting around him. And then he says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now with that, Jesus radically redefines family and radically redefines Loyalty. I mean, we've got to understand that in that culture, this, this culture is a tribal culture, that all of your identity and all that you are in life is determined by your tribe. You are known by your family's name. That family is connected to the larger family of the clan or tribe. You, you enter into the same occupation that your father is in. So if your father's a farmer, you'll be a farmer. If he's a blacksmith, you'll be a blacksmith. That was driven by your family and your tribe. When you got married and had a family of your own, you didn't go out in the suburbs across town and build a house far away from your family. You built a house somewhere near your mom and dad's house and lived basically on the same family land that had been in your family and in the tribe for centuries. And you were to be loyal to family. But Jesus' statement breaks away from all of that. He defines family not by blood, but by obedience to God. Jesus' true family is made up of everyone who does the Father's will. Now later, Jesus would teach his disciples that he came to bring a sword, to place a sword between family members, between fathers and sons and mothers and daughters, right here, he first puts that sword into his own family. Because he can't be ultimately loyal to his family or loyal to God if he's going to put his family above God. Not even Jesus' biological family is automatically in God's family, not even Jesus' biological family. So if that's the case, why would we think we're in because grandmama was a Christian or mama was a Christian? doesn't work that way. He says here, his brothers and sisters and mothers are those who do God's will. If you've been paying attention, the next question you're probably thinking is, what is God's will? I think the best way to sum it up is with Jesus' words. In John chapter 6, verse 29, where he's having a very similar question with the religious leaders and, and, and Jewish people of his day. And he says this, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. That really is the most fundamental work of God. The most fundamental aspect of God's will is that we believe in the one whom he has sent. Who is he sent? His very own son, Jesus Christ. So we, we must believe in Jesus. We must put our trust in him. That's what believe means there. We're going to rely upon him and him alone for the salvation of our souls. We're going to trust in Jesus and Jesus alone to rescue us from the coming wrath of God against the world because of sin. We must gladly accept this Jesus as our Savior, the only begotten Son, who, who first pleased God with perfect obedience in our place. And then died as the sacrificial Lamb of God to atone for our sins on the cross. And then was raised from the grave three days later, to defeat death, to defeat sin, and in fact, to in time, renew the entire creation. It's this Jesus who adopts us into the family of God, who makes us members of his family, brothers and sisters and mothers. It's this Jesus who not only makes us this new family through adoption, but through our adoption, as I said a moment ago, accomplishes the, the recreation of the world. He is our king. He is our savior. He rules from heaven now, and he's going to rule eternally in his consummated kingdom. He is the just judge of all unrighteousness. And he is the righteous sacrifice. For sinners who trust in him. We must believe in this Jesus as he offers himself in the gospel. So let me conclude with asking the question that hangs over this entire gospel. Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? If so, how do you believe it? Do you believe it like demons? Who acknowledge this fact? but don't worship Jesus? Or do you believe it like a true Christian who gladly gives himself over to Jesus as the one who has purchased him with his blood and to worship him in spirit and in truth? Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? Do do you believe it like followers who really don't know him, Christians in name but not in life Do you believe it like those who have seen him as fully God and fully man, as truly Lord, who, who governs our lives? Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? How so? Like religious people who resist the work of the Holy Spirit, who have a form of godliness but deny its power? Or do you believe it like those who have been born again by the Holy Spirit and entered in a newness of life, who keep in step with the Spirit and in whose life can be seen the fruit of the Spirit? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? I hope you do. It's how you come to know God and to live forever in His love we would like nothing more than to help you discover that love. If you're hearing about this for the first time or considering it in a deeper and more profound way, if you are feeling the Spirit drawing you to Jesus, we want to help you get there. So we would invite you now to take this moment to pray, to ask the Lord to give you grace, to repent of your sins, to confess those sins to Him, and to give you grace to to put your, your whole hope of eternal life on the shoulders of Jesus, and to follow him as the Son of God, the Lord of all, uh, for the Savior that he truly is. So we want to invite you to take this time to to pray to that end, and if you pray that way, we want you to let us know so that we can encourage you with more teaching and, and more help in knowing how to follow Jesus. We would like nothing more. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be faithful to you. To know you better than anything else we know in the world. And to love you more than anything else we love in the universe. Father, we pray that you would help us to worship you through your son in the power of your spirit. The way you deserve. With increasing fidelity. With growing joy with deepening affection and trust. Help us to bow to you and to serve you and proclaim that Jesus is Lord, that he is the Son of God to all whom we come into contact with. Make much of yourself through our lives, we pray, and satisfy us with our fellowship with you, we pray. We pray even now that you would give someone saving faith as they they hear this message they'd be born again, and they would begin to follow Jesus in spirit and in truth. We pray that you would strengthen your church and keep us unified in Christ, that as a family, Lord, we might do your will, that we might obey you in all things. Help us to do so, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.